Yeah, I mean, it was a place of fear. It was a place of uncertainty in myself, a lack of belief in the system, a place where I didn't know if I was going to recover. I didn't know my resilience. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Mincione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Mincione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. For this episode of the podcast, we're going to step outside of our comfort zone for a far-reaching, big, and bold interview with a forward-leaning leader driving the future of work and a person I greatly admire, Bria Starmer, the CEO and founder of Lions and Tigers. Lions and Tigers is a very unique digital agency powered by inclusion to drive innovation. I've known Bria for close to 15 years, which is hard to believe because she's not yet 40, and I've watched this amazing growth and trajectory. Today, she leads an organization that I'd be proud to be part of and has created a culture that fosters inclusion, clarity, and courage. In this episode, you'll learn how this woman founder applied courage and grit to a dark moment in her career. She not only paved a path forward, but shaped a destiny. And now she's helping shape the future of work. In this episode, you'll learn what the future of work looks like, how organizations need to think differently about culture, OKRs, Objective Key Results, which I have talked about on other episodes, and her driving force, how she's propelled her career and founded this innovative organization. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed spending time with Bria Starmer. Bria, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vince. I'm so, so happy to be here, finally. I am so excited to finally welcome you as a guest to Ultimate Guide to Partnering. You're the founder and CEO of Lions and Tigers, a very unique digital agency, and you have a terrific story that I can't wait for you to share with us. And we've known each other for quite some time. I was thinking back, I think it's about 15 years now that we've known each other. So I'm so excited for this discussion today. Welcome. Thanks, Vince. I have loved watching this podcast grow and the cast of guests you have has been so impressive. So I'm just so honored to be in the mix. Well, the honor is all mine. We have known each other. We're going to talk about how how we know each other and our relationship hopefully will come across in this conversation today. And I, you know, I was thinking about this too, because this conversation could go in so many directions and I wanted to be thoughtful and be sure that we covered the ground that we needed to cover today and have you tell your story. I thought maybe we'd start just there. Like you have this amazing organization, Lions and Tigers. How did that come to life? Mm, Okay, so Lions and Tigers actually came to be out of a really very difficult time in my life. So I'll step back a little bit. You know that we met uh, working in tech uh, very early in my career. I met you in my very first job out of college. And I've been on sort of an entrepreneurial journey since then, running other people's businesses for a long time. And I had made my way to a startup, a really big tech startup. I was employee 450 or something and decided at that time that it was the right time to start my family. And so a few weeks into my job there, I got knocked up. And (laughs) (laughs) I love the way you put that. (laughs) (laughs) Which (laughs) I was very happy for that to happen. But I was also in a in a startup, which is a you know very unique place to work. And about seven months into my pregnancy there, I was laid off along with 20% of the company. And it was the right business decision, I will say that, but it was a really uh, bad personal timing for me. 
but you know, Vince, I mean, I had been working for a long time. I felt like I had a great network and and called around and tried to find work. And I was met with a lot of pregnancy discrimination. Mm. No one would hire me. And I just was desperate. I mean, you have to imagine, you know, welcoming a first child. We didn't, and and I'm the breadwinner in in my family. And so, you know, I didn't have medical benefits. I hadn't certainly saved for any kind of maternity leave. My husband had just gotten a new job, you know, wasn't enough for us um, to maintain our life. And so there was a lot of fear. It was a really scary time. It sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I could do is I was like, well, maybe someone will hire me as a consultant. Like I could just do some short-term projects for them. And so I got a couple of takers and I just hustled my last trimester to get ready for a self-funded maternity leave with this baby that was coming. And so I went through that process. And after I had Cedar, you know, I was trying to decide like, what do I do now? You know, I, I didn't, I had sort of lost my confidence. I had really questioned my role in the working world. And so I decided to say yes to a few of these part-time consulting projects, just kind of as a bridge. And what I found was that it was delightful. I loved the work and I kept getting more and more projects. And I had a number of my sort of other mom friends like say, how are you doing this? And like, why is this working for you? And I found that I could be really impactful and I could work part-time if I wanted to or full-time if I wanted to. And that kind of power really spoke to me. It just sat with me. And so Vince, there was one day I was sitting with Cedar. I was rocking him in this rocking chair as he was napping on me, like just indulging in this like mom moment. And I felt this incredible sense of overwhelm because I had come from such a dark and low place, lack of confidence, lack, lack of clarity to this moment where I had built a really wonderful career that I was really proud of making high impact uh, projects and work in these like very large tech firms. And I felt really called to share this with others and teach other people how to do this, this kind of work. And so I decided to start a company. And so Lions and Tigers was born. We're a courage brand and we help women and people of color stay in the workforce. So people that are, you know, traditionally marginalized or suppressed or perhaps not believed in the traditional model, we come in and we make space for them. And so, and these are high impact workers too. I mean, these are folks that um, can do a ton in 20 hours a week and we just need to make space for them. And so this is the mission that we're on is to try to create a more authentic, empathetic and inclusive working world. Wow. So I want to step back. There's a lot to unpack here. And so as I think through this process, right, you started to take on some gigs, I guess is what I would refer to them. You took on some work and I, you know, I'm in my own business. I get that, right? Like you can be impactful. You can be flexible hours. You can decide when to work or who to work for, who not to work with. And, but how did you then take and scale that? Because to me, that's a really important factor. Yeah. I mean, so (laughs) here's what happened. I got knocked up again, Vince. That Andrew, we have to have a talk with him. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) I had decided to start this company. And at the same time, we decided to scale our family. And so I knew that I had a deadline. So my entrepreneurial journey and my motherhood journey are the same. I mean, the timing there is they're just they're in they're linked forever. And so, so I started Lions and Tigers as I was pregnant with my second son. And I knew that I had basically seven months, again, seven months to prepare for me potentially stepping out of work to have this other baby. And so I worked backwards. So I crafted a plan that allowed me to bring in others, start offering the opportunities that I had won for myself out to others, oversee their work, make sure that the quality was high. And that's how I started bringing folks along for the this journey. So by the time I had my second son, I had four consultants and one staff member. That was how big our company was. She ran payroll for us. And, and that was basically it. Like I had a very small team of folks that stepped into my client work while I stepped out. Now, I didn't totally step out because, you know, I had a very new business and I was so thrilled to be working during that time. Scout just came along for the ride. Like he just was, he was on my hip as we were, you know, building this for the first time. Um, And so we just continued to add really trusted, good resources 
And we had some clients who were really bold in picking us and they knew that they were going to get a little bit of a different experience from perhaps the management consultant firms they had worked with or the staff org organizations they had called in the past. They knew that the kind of caretaking ethos of our brand was going to come alongside them in a different way. So there was a lot of attraction to what we were offering, which is why it's grown so quickly. You know, I love this seven month work back schedule, I guess is what I refer to it. I love, maybe it's a new principle we could use in business planning. Yes. We'll have to talk about this. But I want to dive in here a little bit because you've started to touch surface on what I would call a just cause, right? And I want to hear more about that. Like you have a big and bold vision for this organization. Can you take us down that path a little bit? Yeah. You know, when I started the business, you, you've heard that, of course, it's it's rooted in my motherhood journey. And I, I felt really called to help other mothers. You know, when I had my son, I was so surprised by the sisterhood of women that showed up for me in, in the time that I needed it. It just, it, it really surprised me. And through really true intrinsic motivation, there was no external factor there. Like it's just that this group of people really deeply wanted to help and share their best practices. And it caught me by surprise. And I compared that and contrasted that to where I spend most of my time at work. And I thought to myself, why couldn't we have that same sort of nurturing community where there's so much intrinsic motivation to help one another at work? I hadn't ever experienced that. I have been in lots of cultures, big and small, startup to enterprise, and I've never found that kind of safety and authenticity. I just haven't found it. And so this was a giant experiment for me to say, can we bring some of those same principles into the workplace so that people can show up with who they are unapologetically and feel actually quite safe to do that. And we know that that that's not the case today, that workplaces don't feel that way. I mean, we're seeing incredible trends of attrition, women dropping out of the workforce at rates we've never seen before, you know, that are predicting that it'll take more than a decade for us to recover, not just the gender gap, but the wage gap and the investment gap, like the kinds of uh, the trends that we're seeing now are really scary events. And so as I started the business and thought about advocating for mothers, that's really where this started. But in 2020, we all faced a global pandemic. We faced a social justice reckoning. And our clients and us were all brought to the mat to ask, are we doing enough? And so we've been on a process for the last you know, two years to think about inclusion and what inclusion looks like. What does inclusive consulting look like today? And so that for me, you know, as I've gone on a founder's journey here, my lens has broadened. I, of course, want to still advocate for mothers because I think that they, they need it. But this lens of bringing inclusion in all forms to the workforce has really resonated with us strongly. And we have attracted talent and clients who want to think about how to change work towards inclusive workplace cultures. So that's what we're really fighting for, interested in, researching today, and trying to solve alongside leaders. So again, a lot to unpack here, right? So I'm thinking about culture, and I want to dig in a little bit on culture. You talked about safety, inclusion, authenticity in terms of culture. I want to understand how you breed that, how you manifest that in an organization. And then we talked about diversity and we all saw this last year, right? I brought the podcast back last summer and we were in the midst of the, po- of the pandemic and the world was on fire, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and we were experiencing that. So how did you manifest some of this? Like what, what did you do next? I think we, 2020 took, took us all and stripped away the ego. I mean, it stripped away all of this pretense and commute and hustle that we were all obsessed with. And it brought out our humanity for good and bad. Uh, We know more about some of our colleagues than we probably ever did before. And there's something really beautiful in that change. And also very scary. If you are a person who is traditionally not heard and not believed, when a workplace moves to this kind of vulnerability, there's lots of risks for you. You know, are you able to raise your hand? Are you, are you able to go to HR? Are you able to ask for the kind of accommodation you need to stay in at work? 
So those are the questions that I for sure knew that I wanted our workforce to be able to answer and to be able to experience at Lions and Tigers. But I also want our clients' organizations to experience the same. So as 2020 unfolded, we did a lot, a lot of deep work at Lions and Tigers specifically because we think about our community as a lab. This is a talent lab. It's a future of work lab. You know, we wanted to understand, you know, we, we've always been remote first. We've always been really digitally savvy. We've always been flexible from the start. We have most of our, our team works about 30 hours a week. This is, really, you know, just sort of intrinsically in our model. But we wanted to see if we could take some of these inclusion principles and gut check them against our model to say, like, are we really being as inclusive? as we need to be. So we we did um, an extensive search. We brought in a team of DEI consultants to help us look at every bit of our process from our messaging on our website to our recruiting experience to our onboarding and our benefits. You know, benefits are one of the biggest barriers for people in the gig worker economy, health benefits. So how did that show up for us so that we were able to attract the kind of talent that our clients need to make sure that they were able to continue to achieve their business goals? So what we've done is we've taken, uh, you know, DEI for us. There's not a, there's no one on my leadership team that, that works specifically on DEI. I don't have that job. What we've done is we've taken a look across our entire business system and we had 120 things that came out of that audit that we now have a, a three year journey to build towards that is embedded in every single piece of our business process. So when you talk about culture and when I walk into client accounts and they're trying to build teams that look inclusive, there are, Steps that have to be taken from every bit of business operations to ensure that we're allowing people the kind of organizational safety and clarity so that they can show up in their highest and best use and not face the kinds of discrimination and exclusionary behavior that we saw pre-2020. I love highest and best use. Okay, you have these clients, partners, if you will, right? You're partnering with other organizations. How do you bring that what you've infused in your organization culturally, the 120 points, how do you then take that over? And when you're locking arms with this other organization, how do you bring them along with you? Yeah. I mean, there are lots of organizations that do change management work. What I think that we do differently is that we are an EQ-driven company because we fundamentally deeply love and care about the folks that work here. And I fundamentally believe that if you put people in their highest and best use and you give them the kind of organizational safety that we build, that your business results, like your bottom line impact will drastically increase. And so again, kind of using the labs of L&T, you know, I'll give you a recent example. We're working with a very large enterprise tech firm and, uh, and a leader there called because she had just received some internal funding. She was going to take her team from 11 to 31, which is a really big jump. I mean, it's basically like a startup investment. So she called us to come in alongside her. And what we did first, which I think is a little different than what other partners would do, is we sent in a licensed psychologist and an executive coach first. So Dr. Renee goes in and she uses data, you know, when we use a, a survey of their team to understand the hotspots in the organization, and we build a culture strategy out of that data. You know, where are the points of concern? Where are the things that are going really well in this organization? There are concerns about trust and work-life balance. Those are the two major challenges in this organization. So Renee led the engagement first. We had a deep uh, connection through through this this work, and she also executive coaches every member of the team. So she handholds the the team members through this big change process that's about to come. And then me and my leadership team joined her for a management consulting sprint, where we took a approach that looked like three prong work streams. We did a change to the business, a change to the team, and an operations at scale. And so we came along and we fortified each one of those pieces so that we could really build a foundation that was more communicative, more clear, and that the team could trust and see. And so then that that has concluded. And now that the team is ready to scale up, we are now staffing in 12 part-time folks to help them operate in their highest and best use now that we've done that kind of pre-work. And so throughout that process, you didn't hear me say that there was an inclusion work stream. No, I didn't. 
But what we've done is because we have started with organizational safety and clarity, we then take and apply these principles of inclusion throughout each step so that folks are heard, that at the end of the day, they feel they are, that they know what is expected of them and they can go off and do their work and know how they're going to be rewarded. And that's the kind of clarity that people need to feel included. So so we're just taking a little bit of a different lens around business transformation. So I know you do a lot of work in the tech sector. And what I really wanted some clarity around, Bria, is like, why does an organization bring in lions and tigers? Like, what skill sets do you bring to them? What do you offer? And what are you best known for? Yes. So there's two major reasons that someone would call lions and tigers. The first is that we help change organizations to build a culture of inclusion. So leaders that know that they want a different looking and feeling culture, but they don't particularly know how to get there. And they need this sort of EQ driven change management work. That's the first thing that we do. The second is that we enable part-time and flexible work for high impact consultants. So this is about helping their team operate in their highest and best use using outsourced talent. So there are like really kind of two scenarios where we come alongside leaders and sometimes both happen together and sometimes they, they're separate bodies of work. What I'm seeing now, Vince, is that, you know, Paul Estes is a, is a thought leader in the gig space. And he says that if you don't have a gig worker strategy in 2021, it's like not having an internet strategy in the 1990s. Like this is the time when leaders are trying to rapidly make decisions with the right folks in the room. And so I I guess I would think about calling lions and tigers when you're trying to get the right folks in the room for the next set of decisions you need to make. So you help them lay their foundation. I think about culture. I think about mindset. It's, It's almost like I bring you in to help do a mindset tuning, if you will, right? You're helping my culture but then you're also doing work like where I need it specifically. Like I need, I need some lift here. And I know you do some work with some of the organizations we both care about. And what you're coming in is helping them to solve for some of their biggest challenges. I also know you happen to use some really exceptional tools here. And I was hoping maybe you'd share a little bit about a model that we both care about, OKRs. Oh, Vince, we are both OKR fans, aren't we? We are. Yeah, you know, that was a uh, a very strategic choice on our part to start embedding OKR work within our practice. Because what I found very candidly is that, you know, we can staff highly qualified ta- talent all day. I mean, that's really natural for us. But I was finding that there was this decision-making process early on that we weren't a part of, where leaders were starting to form where their investment went, what their outcomes looked like, and that that wasn't trickling down to the staff that needed to make the day-to-day decisions, and therefore it was impacting our team. So this was sort of a defensive strategy for us to move into OKR work, Uh, but it has been... Interesting. Yeah, it's been so good for us because, well, one, I'm a big fan of OKRs as an organizing principle. I know you are too. So we're OKR certified. We we have a number of partners that we work with that look like OKR tooling. And I'm a huge believer of the kind of uh, transparency that you get when a leadership team builds a set of OKRs. My company uses them very religiously and we, we track to them and they're constantly how we scope our work. And you can imagine in my world where we've got part-time work people coming and going all the time, and that's the nature and, and what we try to nurture, that boundaries become incredibly important. And so OKRs, to me, are the most beautiful boundary tool that we could possibly bring to work. I love the term boundary tool, by the way. I refer to, in the work that I do around maniacal focus, like they help you get crisp and clear about your focus, and then also the execution, right? To your point, you have people coming in and out what was it that we agreed we were going to go do? What's our objective? What are the results that we've lined up against? And then how do we measure those? And what are the milestones associated, right? That's right. And, you know, as my own company scales, you know, we're approaching 100 folks at Lions and Tigers. So as we scale and my staff staff team expands, you know, we're going through a hiring round right now, OKRs will be critical critical to our onboarding for all of these new folks. Like, I don't think that I could possibly achieve any of my goals without having uh, a documented set of OKRs that are regularly refreshed and put on post-it notes around my room. Like, this is this is how we operate. I love that. Well, we'll talk more about the tools, too, because we've had some guests on already. Uh, one that we both know, Jeremy Epstein, has been on this podcast. Yes, I loved that episode. He's such a great individual. 
So, you know, this is the ultimate guide to partnering, right? And I am finally writing a book about what makes successful partnerships. You have been in this partner ecosystem for quite some time. You and I both work together in the partner business at Microsoft. So I have to ask you, what do you believe makes a great partner? Well, first of all, I'm so excited that you're writing a book, Vince. The world needs it and the world needs your voice. So I can't wait to get my hands on that and amplify that. You've always taught me that partnerships are built on trust and these relationships. So I think that that's, you know, table stakes. As I have grown in my own entrepreneurial journey and motherhood journey, the thing that I've come back to that has really helped me build these beautiful partnerships with individuals and organizations is a connection on values. And that may sound simple, but it's not. It's incredibly complicated. And I have used that over and over and over as a guide to a yes or a no on partnership decisions. So for me, the values that we've set out at Lions and Tigers are stewardship, being really mindful of resources and time and money, intentional community, meaning that we're coming together on purpose for cause, impact over hours, meaning that we don't watch the clock. We instead watch our the outcomes that we're driving for business. And lastly is courage. And if I can find those values in a partner, it's a really easy yes. And every time that I have not trusted my gut and that there's not been a values match, that's when I've had regrets. Such a good alignment strategy. I love including values into that alignment because it, it really is an alignment of two organizations, right? And trust is underlying to your point. And I love what you had to say about courage because courage doesn't come in all, up often enough, but often, and women struggle here with courage, right? So talk to me more about courage. Well, I named my company Lions and Tigers, Vince. So <laughs> <laughs> it always brings me back to the Wizard of Oz when I hear your name. I know, I know. And, you know, of course, the Wizard of Oz did inspire it. Dorothy is one of the most beautiful journey women who brings along a group of friends on her journey. So there was definitely some inspiration drawn there. But, you know, what what we're building is a courage brand. And I think one thing that I, I have to say, and, and I can't, I do not represent all women by any stretch of the imagination. I represent me and perhaps the folks that choose to work with me. But, you know, so, so much of inclusion is about accepting power. There's these power dynamics in these relationships. And this is the, the piece that, you know, I've really been studying lately around feminism and white supremacy and like how these systems are built around power dynamics. And when we think about courage, you know, the thing that, that the reason that that resonates so strongly with us and our values is that there is an element of courage that is a self-accountability element, like the fact that we want to conjure courage or that we're on this journey of fearlessness. I talk about that a lot. But it also means that we need to acknowledge the system that we're living in, the water that we're swimming in, because the system wasn't built for us. There are not people who look like me or people that look like my company sitting in these boardrooms making these decisions most of the time. And so what I don't want courage to be is an individual journey. And that's why intentional community follows along because my belief is that collectively we can make change and that never, it should never be a one person's responsibility that their imposter syndrome is the reason that the system doesn't work uh, because there's a lot more to explore there. And there's a lot more culpability in our working world and with our leaders today. I think that that, that clarity has been really useful for me to step into the kind of courage and allyship work that I want to do. Can you and do you teach courage? Yes. Yes, you can. Absolutely. Yeah. And being surrounded by people, like-minded people who, who share your interests that believe in you, like, absolutely, you can, you can conjure this. You can build this over time. This is a muscle. I think of it as like a yoga practice. Like no one is ever good at yoga, but people spend their entire, entire life learning how to get better and better and better at it. I think of courage in the same way. And there are seasons, there are seasons to this, Vince, where I feel incredibly courageous, incredibly energetic and ready to go and filled. And then there are other seasons where I don't feel that way. I feel suppressed. I feel unseen. You know, I feel like I'm fighting against and trying to push an ocean. And so, and that's okay too. 
that dichotomy is okay. And that's, that's something I think we need to norm- normalize as well. You know, so often I hear from women guests about the imposter syndrome, right? It comes up quite often in these discussions. And you're a woman CEO in a you know world and a community not crowded with women CEOs. So what do you tell yourself? You know, I honestly do not like the term imposter syndrome because it implies that it's my fault. That's a good point. And that I am the imposter. And that is not true. I have loads of worth and lots of value. And so what I think about is, and you talked a little bit earlier, caught onto this theme around highest and best use. And this is actually a term that I stole from real estate. My parents are in that business. And so in the real estate term, highest and best use refers to a plot of land and what a developer could turn that plot of land into for the highest return on investment. I think about that in terms of our time and our hours, because, you know, I'm currently working part time. My daughter is home with me one day a week. So I've got this like sort of shifty schedule. And so I have to be really mindful with where my hours go. Like this is a great way to spend an hour with you, Vince, is like just to talk about some of these big trends. But in order for me to do that, you know, I have to be incredibly conscious about where I am best served who is like taking care of all of the things in my life so that I can show up here. Women especially have a lot more often responsibility in caretaking, in the emotional labor, in the kind of the burden that a lot of women carry, especially if you're mothers. There is a tremendous tax on us that men don't experience. And I'm generalizing, so I have to be really careful about that. But statistics show, of course, that that women take the majority of the caretaking responsibilities. Absolutely. And so, you know, not only am I talking with you today, but I also have my Amazon cart open because my kid needs size eight shoes. Like, so all of that stuff exists at the same time for us. And especially as a CEO, right? Like then I, I will run from this. I have an all hands meeting here in 30 minutes that I need to show up and inspire a big group of folks uh, to make sure that they get to keep going and operating their highest and best use. So Women CEOs have a little bit of a different a different gig. You know, we have a different set of responsibilities. And even for women who aren't caretaking for children, we are often caretaking for others, no matter what. Like that's just part of the expectation of us. And so I think it's just a, a question of whether, you know, as a woman CEO and as a, a leader, if that's an identity you want to claim. For me, that's really important, but not everyone needs to claim that identity if that's not who they are. I love what you had to say here. By the way, nurturing comes in loud and clear in this conversation too, right? Do you feel that women CEOs maybe have a benefit in terms of nurturing because they maybe it's more intuitive? Do you feel like that is the case? I think, you know, studies show that women are, you know, more emotionally intelligent. And that certainly has proven to be a very good business value for me. That the challenge that women face, especially founders, especially VC founders, is that, you know, that there still exists a lot of discrimination. You know, of course, you know, we know the wretched numbers of investment, especially for women, especially women of color, to be able to show up in the working world and try to receive the same kind of respect, investment, funding, belief as their male counterparts. You know, there are more males male fortune 500 CEOs named John than there are women. So, you know, we've got a long way to go, but that doesn't mean that the world is hopeless. Like, I mean, I've, I've experienced a lot of love and a lot of support, but I'm also bootstrapped. So I've got a different scenario. I'm not asking for funding. I don't have shareholders. And that was very intentional. Um, For women that are tech founders that are looking for investment, that's a very different scenario to go after. And, and they're facing a lot of discrimination today. Yeah. And if you look around the boardroom, it's a bunch of guys that look like that are named John. Let's just call it that, right? That's right. Yeah. I heard Sally Krawcheck from Elevest talk a bit about this in a podcast she did with a, a Seattle gal that I really love called Her First 100K because financial literacy is really important to me. And Sally was talking about you know her roles in many of these boardrooms. And you know she was saying how in her perception, she wasn't fighting against the men in the room. It's that there was one seat for women. And so she was fighting against all the other women for that seat. And that just gave me, you know, this feeling in my, this is the sad feeling in my stomach, right? Like it's just that we still have so much work to do for a representation perspective. And that is a fight that we'll probably, you know, have for the next generation. And what's so poignant about that for me personally is that 2020 for me brought a little girl into my life. I had my third baby this last year. Congratulations, by the way. 
thank you. My third and, third and final baby. <laughs> and, and so the calling now to raise two boys and two, you know, male identifying boys and one female is, is different. I know you've got, you know, each kid in your family. And so I'm really starting to question what do I want this world to look like for my own children? You know, what do I want to teach them? And what do, what do I want to build before they're in the working world, which I've got 13 years until Cedar starts working. So I've got to move quick. So what does that look like? Boy, I hope that to your question earlier about teaching them courage, I hope that they will individually walk out of our household with a strong sense of courage. Now, purpose is a whole nother thing. You know, I feel quite lucky to have found purpose before I hit 40. But most people take a lifetime to find their purpose. So I guess I won't think too highly about that. So I wanted to dig in on purpose, right? So, you know, I've known you for quite some time. And I remember having, and you have a bright, you are a bright light. By the way, I believe you are bright light. It's just amazing conversation today. And I, I remember having a conversation with a young Bria Starmer several years ago. It might have been 12 or 13 years ago. And I don't know, it might have been a phone conversation or it might have been at one of our big partner events. I'm not quite sure. But I do recall like there was a spark there. There was a fire there. But what got you set off? Like what was the driving force, that spark that got you off on your journey? Yeah, I mean, I was I was working in corporate. I spent you know nearly five years in enterprise tech, and I felt like I was really good at PowerPoint. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I don't think this is my impact in the world. And I know that I'm oversimplifying, of course, but I just called into question. You know, I, I didn't have the words yet for highest and best use, but I knew that that's what I was questioning. So I decided to go and work for, you know, a brand new company. I was employee number one and question of whether I wanted to get an MBA or I had a, a mentor say to me, you know, if you can get someone to pay you to run their business, like that's a better way to go. And so I went and, and started a business as kind of a co-founder and built that company up to 120 employees and $16 million of revenue in four years. And so I kind of had that experience. I went and ran a digital agency because I wanted to understand the different business models and the idea of having a quota for staff. I wanted owned talent and understand how you build and have responsibility to that. And then I went to this whole startup world where there were shareholders, where we were a B2C model. It was a very different kind of working environment. And that's where my career planning ended. You know, I really wanted this well-rounded experience, but I never felt called to do something myself. I knew that I was making especially a bunch of dudes really rich. <laughs> and I just knew that I that's not where I wanted the money to go. And it wasn't until I was taken out of the workforce that I was sidelined, that I understood who I needed to advocate for. So I have these two post-it notes on my monitor right here. And the first one is what really keeps me up at night. And it was our diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant said this to me. She said, Bria, who are you protecting? And then next to it is a post-it note that is what keeps me, which what gets me up in the morning. And that is, says, she inspired me to achieve what we all thought was just potential. And those two things sit here on my desk because it is really what I'm trying to manifest, which is people moving from a place of discomfort and fear to a place of courage and feeling like they can ask for what they need in the workforce that they are, that they are contributing to. And that's okay. So that is absolutely amazing. And give us those two post-it notes one more time. Who are you protecting? Who are you protecting? So what does that mean to you? I think that that really called into question who I was advocating for and this this idea of a broadening lens, that it wasn't just mothers, that it is all people who are excluded, all people who are aren't who are not in the boardroom. Those are the folks that I, I want to fight for and I want to get in that room. And is that your just cause? I think so. And what was the second post that no? She inspired me to achieve what we all thought was just potential. And is that where you see Bria in the future or today? Yeah, that is what I hope to give to my children. That is what I hope to give to lions and tigers. That's what I hope to give to anyone that comes into our orbit. Uh, I mean, that that's the piece is that I just, I want folks to realize their power and their worth. You know, I had Vince, <laughs> every month we welcome new employees to the company. And last month I had someone in our new employee orientation say to me, 
Bria, Lions and Tigers has been the aloe to my workplace burns. Wow. Yes. Aloe to my workplace burns. Yes. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. We all have that. And you, right? We do. I mean, you're talking and I love you started you started this conversation by taking us to where you were at that seventh month of pregnancy, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a place of fear. It was a place of uncertainty in myself, a lack of belief in the system, a place where I didn't know if I was going to recover. I didn't know my resilience. And so what I didn't know then was that I was already exhibiting all of the motherhood traits that would come about and build this business, like all of the things that I use to protect my family. I used to protect this business and our clients, like that kind of energy was in me this whole time. I just didn't know it. So did it all come from within or was there like, you know, we all have guides, Sherpas, mentors. I know I, for a period of time, I was a mentor in your career at Microsoft. Absolutely. Was there a best piece of advice or did you, did it manifest itself to you in a different way? You know, mentorship uh, has really changed for me throughout the years. I have not had, I think, maybe one single mentor that I went to for every decision I've made. Just like you said, you know, you you were important to me in making some really critical early career decisions. And then even lately, you know, uh, we've come back together. But as I've made each one of these career moves and decisions, I feel like I've had these like sort of these these moments of mentorship connection that have helped me with that just next right move. So it's kind of similar in some ways to the Lions and Tigers promise. I've experienced the same, that there have been people who are specialists in this next decision that I've used to make those, to get the kind of confidence and clarity I needed to do that next thing. And what has surprised me um, and that I, that has also inspired me is deeper and richer communities with broader people. So I have been a part of a number of especially women entrepreneur groups and these motherhood groups. And both of those have really lifted me in a way that I didn't expect and offer different things than a one-on-one mentorship relationship does. So I've deeply valued those kind of community motions, which is again, a part of why it's such a big, a big piece of Lions and Tigers. I love what you had to say here. So where is Lions and Tigers? five years from today? Oh, I believe that this is a future of work portfolio company. We today offer management consulting and on-demand talent because that's what the working world needs today. But I'm really curious about a number of other line extensions or business models that really go after some of these other elements of the future of work. So for example, skilling. I believe skilling is the currency of the future. You know, I, I am I'm very curious about what our role looks like in the future of skilling, especially as it relates to access. Today, we work with highly skilled consultants, but tomorrow I'd like to work with a broader set of folks who would like to expand and grow their skills so that they can become highly skilled consultants. So that's a future for us. Uh, you know, I'm interested in tech and how we can use technology to enable a remote workforce, uh, especially folks that work in their highest and best use. There's not a tech platform built for us. Sounds like an opportunity area. So that's something I'm curious. Yeah, maybe some members of your community want to have a chat. That's something I'm, yeah, I'm curious about. And then, you know, another big trend in this space is talent marketplaces. You know, what what's happening in the world of talent marketplaces uh, it's something that we have not yet embraced very intentionally because this is a, we're in a high quality, low quantity phase. Um, but I'm curious about where we play there and how do we ensure that we're getting the kind of broad reach uh, that our clients need. So there's a few things sitting on my mind that I can't wait to go and tackle as we get into the last half of this year and start thinking about 2022. There is so many more places we could go. And I'm being mindful of time today. I am going to ask you one more question about work. And I just, we didn't ask you this earlier, but I do think that this is important. We have seen coming out of this time like no other, we've seen people realize that, you know, I don't want to go back into the workforce or I don't want to go back into the office. And maybe the gig I'm in right now isn't the best gig. And maybe it's time to cut, you know, cut, cut loose. What are you seeing now? How is that impacting what you're seeing out there? All I say to that is hallelujah. (laughs) 
<laughs> go, go, go. Yes, I am seeing people dropping out of the workforce, either forced out like myself or dropping out because they're passion seekers or they just can't do it anymore. And it's just, it's just the truth. Like we just like this, it's just not working. I, I have a, a, an advisory member who was a senior director at a large tech firm that just left two weeks ago because she's got two kids, 10 and 13. And she's like, I, it's just not worth it. It's, I just can't do it anymore. And, and I don't want to, that's not the system I want to be a part of. And so, so yes, this is happening everywhere. This is why I say that if, if leaders aren't thinking about a strategy for gig workers and retention at the same time, which is why I think about both together, then they're going to miss, they're going to lose, you know, you're not going to be able to keep the talent in the room that you need. And so, uh, you know, this is Lions and Tigers just happened to be on this trend slightly before this happened. You know, gig workers, remote work, and keeping women in the workforce was sort of our jam when we started this three years ago. And so I, I'm so grateful that that it's becoming okay, that this conversation is is really taking a forefront in the news on the front page of the papers, and that people are starting to really pay attention to how to think about talent in a different way. Yeah. And I want our guests to check out Lions and Tigers on your website. And if they want to get in touch with you, Brio, how do they do that? You know, LinkedIn is my favorite platform. So you can find me on LinkedIn. And then our, our website is lions-tigers.com or at Lions Tigers Co. on Instagram. Well, we're going to have a little bit of fun now. We, we're talking about business quite a bit. And this is kind of ties into you and business as well. But I like love to ask this question of my guests. So, you know, we're coming out of this time like no other. And hopefully... We've been vaccinated and we can unmask and don't worry about social distancing, but you're having a dinner party and you can invite any three guests to this dinner party from the present or the past. Whom would you invite and why? Ooh, I'm so fascinated by present, like modern day feminism. So I certainly would extend an invite to Melinda Gates. She is such a bold leader on of course, reproductive rights, but also the kind of global feminism that I think is missing from a lot of our conversations. I would invite Malala because I feel like I have so much to learn from this girl who has overcome tremendous odds. Like, you know, I, I think about my discrimination story and I think, well, I certainly wouldn't even bring that up to Malala. Like, you know, like I would want to, I would listen, I would listen to her. And then I'd invite Kamala Harris. I kind of knew that Kamala was going to be on this list. I don't know. I just thought about it for a moment. But I think I would want our host to be Brene Brown. Like, I want, like, her Yacht Rock playing in the background, and I want Brene to kind of, like, facilitate the conversation. <laughs> this would be such a dream. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And maybe I could come along, at least for maybe an appetizer or a cocktail. But I'll let... You'd be very welcome. You know, I, and I love Brene as well. I love all three of these, by the way. Uh, and there's some really great, you know, some really great wisdoms that will be shared, I'm sure, at that table. I'm going to ask you one more question, only because you brought up Brene Brown, and I'm going to throw you off a little bit on this one. So I love that Brene asked this on her podcast, and I've asked some of our guests this, but you are in a place where you can only take five songs along with you. It might be a deserted island, a deserted island. Or it might just be that you've only got, you've got a Zune and only can load five songs on it. What five songs would you pick to be on your playlist? These are the only five songs, by the way, you're ever going to listen to for the perceivable future. What songs would be on there and why? Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, Andrew's the music one in our family. I mean, for a while, he was in a band professionally. So... Gosh, I guess I should say one of his songs, right? This is my husband. Uh, okay, I'll do that. That's probably good for my marriage. So Sunderland was the name of his band. He wrote one of the songs called Speed Limits and Stop Signs. So I'll let's take that as number one. Speed Limits and Stop Signs. Good song. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so I've got that taken care of. I would probably take... I've been recently a very big fan of Lady Gaga. I wasn't originally, but I've really grown to love her and I love her work in A Star is Born. So I would probably take Shallow. Nice. Uh, there's a Casey Musgrave song. I think it's called Rainbow Over Your Head, something like a rainbow, something like that. 
one has always particularly resonated for me because I have, I don't know if in that world she's thinking and talking about privilege, but that's how that song shows up for me. And it's felt uh, like really resonant. Came at three. Michael Bublé has to be on the list. So really anything in his collection I would take with me. Okay. And then maybe like, uh, like an Ella Fitzgerald song. Ella Fitzgerald. I love that. Maybe something in that. I don't know. Kind of bluesy, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe totally opposite and we'd get like an Eric Church song in there. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, I just had to have some fun with that. And we'll, we, we'll publish this as well. We might put together a Spotify. Ooh, I love that idea. Playlist for this. Yeah. So come back to me with the act, actual names. We'll put this into the, into the podcast. Bria, you have been an amazing, amazing guest. I want to just thank you for your generosity and time. And I know what this type of commitment means in terms of personal and work-life balance, uh, although I don't like the term work-life balance. Uh, But I do appreciate you taking the time today to be with our guests and share where the future of work is going. Well, thank you, Vince. And thanks for, you know, really illuminating conversations that we all need to have. I love your podcast and I am deeply grateful for many years of friendship with you and can't wait to see what the future holds. I can't wait as well. Thanks again. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzion. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.